charge to the church at Ephesus would seem to fit perfectly in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is brutal. And there's a war about every three or four pages. In the Old Testament, the people of God were constantly fighting physical battles. You know, we are regaled with the classic stories of David and Goliath, where David, the little shepherd boy, takes a slingshot and a stone, and he knocks the giant down. A lot of people stop there, but the rest of the story is he went over once he knocked the giant down, took the giant's own sword away from him, and cut the giant's head off. It's a bloody testament, the Old Testament. And then we hear about the giants that were positioned on the walls of Jericho and uh, keeping the people of God out. And God made the walls crumble. And after they crumbled and fell, a lot of people stopped preaching there. But the Israelites jumped over the crumbled walls and took the city of Jericho with the sword by killing everyone in it. And it's a bloody book. We read about Samson killing a thousand Philistines with no weapon except the jawbone of a dead donkey. We read about the conquests with the Amalekites and the Malachites and, and all of the ites in the scripture. Israel was always in some kind of fight. But when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, all of a sudden we don't see any wars anymore. There's no conquests. There's no uh, praying and asking God for a miracle on the battlefield like Joshua did when he was fighting his enemies one day. He had almost wiped them out, but the sun was going down and he needed a little bit more daylight to finish the battle. So he prayed and said, God, can you leave the sun in the sky? Can you make the sun stand still so I can kill the rest of these people and get the victory? And God did it. New Testament, we don't see that. Why? Did the devil leave? No. The enemy has changed his tactic. And the warfare has shifted from the natural realm to the spiritual realm. The enemy has slipped into stealth mode and is fighting under a cloak of invisibility. At one time, it was literal arrows flying at the physical bodies of the people of God. And now the arrows are still flying, but now they're flying at your soul, your mental health, your spirit, your finances, your relationships, your heart. And in our text, Paul announces the shift of the warfare. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, there's been a transition. The days of the battles between the people of God and the enemy being fought in the physical are over. This is no longer about flesh and blood. And then Paul uses his apostolic anointing to reach into heaven and pull revelation for the church to yank the cloak off of the enemy. This is not taught enough in our churches, but Paul clearly defines 
defines and describes the four branches of demonic government. It's right there in the text. And it's important to acknowledge it and shed light on it because the enemy hates to be exposed. The enemy loves the darkness of anonymity. He loves the darkness and the shadows of not being seen and realized. He loves to move without his movements being tracked or traced. But Paul just... It's just like leaking out of his pen. He describes the four branches of demonic government. He's, he starts with, we're not fighting flesh and blood, but number one, we are fighting against principalities. Everyone say principalities. <clears throat> principalities defined are prince demons, high-ranking demons, who bring regular and targeted attacks in certain regions. These are regional devils that have authority over certain specific physical locations. For example, certain regions are plagued by poverty. It doesn't matter when you look at them, whether you look at them in 1821, 1921, or 2021, there's always been poverty in that region. And great people can move into that region. You can have entrepreneurs and business people, but, but they always hit a ceiling and end up moving on or moving out or digressing themselves because there's something in that region that if it is not moved and if it is not challenged, you will never be able to get above a certain mark or a certain level because there's a prince demon of poverty in that region. Another thing, uh, there are certain regions that are prone to certain uh, spirits of infirmity and diseases. There's certain regions where there, there's a certain type of cancer and it hits every family in the region, somewhere in the family, and it's a specific type of cancer or a specific type of disease. When you're dealing with that, not all disease is a devil, but when you're dealing with something like that, you know there's a principality in the region. I'll remind you that devils love to operate in regions, especially high-ranking ones. When Jesus cast the legions of demons out of the man of Gadara, you remember the demons asked Jesus, will you send us into the pigs? Because we don't want to leave the region. If we have to leave the man, that's fine. He's just one man. But send us into the pigs so that we don't have to leave the region. Because we have a force in this region. This region is up under our authority. These are principalities. <clears throat> the next classification Paul reveals are powers. Everyone say powers. Powers are demons that establish control in an area of your life only when you open the door and entertain them. <clears throat> These are not demons that have the power to come and kick your door in and take over certain things. You have to partner with them. You have to play with them. Okay. These are the classification of demons where you see strongholds, addictions, th things like that, habitual uh, torment and weaknesses that happens in the case of powers. Uh, you know, for example, someone, someone called us, uh, one of our elders, and um, they wanted the elders to come and bless the house. And... Um, and, and we can do that. We can come and we can bless your house. If you've got some kind of dark presence or dark demonic activity coming on, we can go in and we can bless the house. 
the problem is if you open the door back up to that mess when we leave, it's going to come right back in because you opened the door. And uh, this person had all types of, uh, there's a, a certain uh, book that turned into a movie and it's all rooted in the occult and in witchcraft. And there was a whole room in the house with all of the artifacts and the movie posters and all this kind of stuff put all over the walls and you got pentagrams and you got witchcraft, blatant witchcraft going on inside on the walls and everywhere in the house. And the elder, the elder told him, uh, I can bless your house. It ain't going to do no good because you, you've got an active open door here to the demonic world. And if you really want this thing to get out of your house, you, you need to close this door. And the, the lady wouldn't do it because she loved all those things. And if that's your position, keep dancing with your devils and stop calling us. If you want deliverance, you have to be willing to close the door to what caused. <clears throat> or there's certain people, you know, they, they develop an addiction. Um, and, you know, for some people, it's just a chemical dependency. For other people, it is a chemical dependency partnered with a demonic spirit and rehab doesn't work. Counseling doesn't work stuff that's worked for millions and millions of other people. And they were able to get off this thing. You can't get off of it because not only are you dealing with something natural as far as the chemical dependency, but you're also dealing with a spiritual stronghold from these demons called powers. That's what they do. They get you to open up a door and then they take root and they set up a power structure in your life spiritually. And the attack becomes regular. It becomes systematic and it becomes something that you have to partner with God in your own deliverance in that area. Oh, I know we don't like that. <laughs> We just want somebody to come over and spray some oil on the room and, you know, just say a prayer and walk out and you don't have to do nothing. But, but with these devils, you have to close the door, you know, calling us all the time. So many of y'all have been calling us about demonic activity in your house, you know, and then we start questioning you and you watch demonic horror movies and have all kind of junk playing in your house and going through the media airwaves of your house. And what you don't realize is you have opened the door. If you don't like that stuff, close the door. Then pray. Then get your house blessed. But you got you to gotta close the door. Those are powers. Powers. And then next, he says, number three, the rulers of the darkness of this age. The rulers of the darkness of this age. If you have that slide, please put it up the rulers of the darkness of this age. It, it, <clears throat> it's somewhat different. Uh, <clears throat> it's somewhat difficult when you're going through a real popular scripture that a lot of people have heard about <clears throat> because we'll read past it <clears throat> and just breeze through it without considering the depth of what each word is meaning. When he says the rulers of, of, dark, of the darkness is what the slide should be, the darkness of this age, he's talking about demons who influence culture and government. I'm going to say it again. Demons who influence culture and government in the specific age that they're in. 
okay? So when Paul was talking about the rulers of the darkness of this age, he was talking about his age. And what he was saying is <clears throat> there's people who are influencing culture, uh, your writers, your playwrights, your, your music people, your entertainment people, your people that have an influence in culture. Some of them are on assignment by devils to make the culture darker, okay? And the goal with the enemy from the time of Paul till now, and we estimate this happens about every 10 years, the goal of the enemy is to advance darkness a little bit more every 10 years so that it gets darker and darker and darker in the earth, specifically in the areas of government and culture, okay? So if you look at America in the 1950s, what was going on in the culture, in the media, on the radio, on the TV, in the magazine publications, it's a lot darker today, okay? Because every 10 years, there's a changing of the guard of those demons, and they bring people in, people that are designed and people that are gifted by the enemy to influence the culture in a dark direction. Same thing with government. Things that have been happening with government, uh, I don't want to make anybody mad, so the last 10 years, things that have been happening in government on both sides, you know, there's been some dark stuff, and it's gotten darker and darker and darker. We're not just talking about national politics, we're talking about uh, local politicians, state politicians, uh, national, we're even talking about school board people, people that are writing bills and passing laws, senators, congressmen. Some of those people that you voted for are on assignment from the devil, specifically with this purpose, to make this place a little bit darker than when they found it, to increase the level of spiritual darkness in this age. And by the time my sons are preaching, the world will be a little bit darker than it is in this age. The Bible says as time goes on, it will wax worse and worse and get darker and darker before the ultimate end comes. But this darkness is influenced by these rulers of darkness who influence the age. And then finally, Number four, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. I already told you the sky. This is Satan's general command, the source of all of his activity. Uh, I want to show you this in the book of Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. Mysterious scripture here. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is writing and he said, Suddenly, a hand touched me. Now listen, at this time, Daniel has been praying for weeks with no answer. He's in crisis. He needs God to move. He's been praying for weeks, no answer. Then he says, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees, on the palms of my hands, next verse. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. Next. 
while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Verse 12, then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, you look at prince of Persia and kings of Persia, you think he may be talking about natural kings and natural princes. Not so. If you look at the original Hebrew, he's talking about demons. And when he mentions Michael, he's talking about Michael, the archangel, the highest ranking angel in heaven. So look at what he's saying here. He set down his heart to pray, desperately needing a word from God, and God sent a messenger angel the first day he prayed. But that messenger angel was delayed because he got caught up in the region of Persia when he ran into the prince apality, the prince demon who had authority in that region. And that prince demon held that messenger angel up for 21 days until God finally got fed up and sent Michael, his strongest angel down there, to clear the path for the word he intended to get to Daniel to get to him. This these three little verses reveal some of what's going on above our heads. That in the sky, there is warfare. In the sky, there is a spy named Satan monitoring our activity, monitoring our prayers, monitoring our movement. And his heart and intent is to resist us every day of our lives. And so... As believers, we are the targets of these four sectors of demonic resistance. And often we are too carnal and too naturally focused, too world focused to realize the difference between just everyday trouble and all out demonic attack. And the first word I have for you this morning is, you need to consider the possibility that what you're going through may be an attack. Okay. It, it may not be that you just fell out of love with your husband and don't want to be with him anymore. It may be that your marriage is up under attack. It may not be that your children have gone crazy. They may be up under attack. Okay. It, it may not be that you're not being used by the Lord in the ministry you're in and it's time to transit. You, you may just be up under a targeted, systematic attack of the enemy. Now, not all trouble is an attack, but some is. Maybe you're not a manic depressive, like the therapist told you you were. Maybe your emotions and your mental health is up under a targeted attack. Maybe the anxiety or the restlessness is an attack of the. Maybe it's not a midlife crisis. You're laughing, but it's in the room. 
Maybe it's not a resurfacing of all of your trauma from 20 years ago. Maybe what you're going through. Maybe your spouse is not just a dirty dog that looks at everything that walks by. Maybe, maybe what you're going through. Oh, hallelujah. Is an attack of the enemy. And, and much of the, the national messages and national books that are being written towards Christendom are completely leaving out this reality that there is, in fact, a devil loose and his primary target is you. He's a masterful assassin, a major thief. His purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And anyone that names the name of Jesus, sings praise to Jesus, worships Jesus, gives to Jesus, serves Jesus, has drawn a bullseye on their being saying, hit right here. It could be an attack. It could be an attack. And the Apostle Paul does not want his church at Ephesus to be ignorant of this reality, and neither do I. So he tells them in Ephesians chapter 10, verse 13, if you'll put it up on the screen, he, he tells them to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, at least to stand. Now, we have read that, those of us that have been adequately churched, we've read that so much most of us can quote it. But I want you to think about what he's saying. There's two things I want to bring a juxtaposition in your focus on. He said, take up the whole armor. It's a lot of armor. Take up the whole, come on, preach with me. Take up the whole armor of God. Now, why am I going to take it up? That I might be able to fight. That I might be able to chase the devil. That I might be able to wipe out demonic hordes. He said, I want you to take up this whole armor just so that you can be able. That's a lot of armor. Just to stand. And see, by saying this, he is revealing what the enemy is really after in the attack. Because every attack has a purpose. Every attack has a design. Every attack has an ultimate goal. And what the enemy wants, he wants the place you're currently standing. He wants to get you so stressed out, so frustrated, so miserable, so up under fear, so up under worry that you somehow shift your feet and move yourself away from the place you're standing. The battle is not about your car. It's not about your finances. It's not about your health. It's not about your kids. The battle is not about anything in this natural world. The battle is about the position and the place that you're standing. 
Because destiny has a location and purpose has a place. I'm going to say it again. I said destiny has a location and purpose has a place. And the enemy's primary goal is to make you miserable in the place where you are standing. Because the place where God planted you is the blessed place. The place where God planted you is the safe place. The place where God planted you is the prosperous place. So he'll send every hellhound he has to try to convince your mind and convince your soul that you need to move, that you'd be happier if you moved out of place, that you'd be happier if you moved out of the marriage, that you'd be happier if you got away from the family, that you'd be happier if you left the church, that you'd be happier in a different city, that you'd be happier if you moved out of that neighborhood. Not realizing that where God plants you, he will prosper you if you have the stick Intuitiveness to stand your ground and stay in your what the enemy wants you to do is to run from one thing to another one spouse to another one house to another one car to another one thing to another one city to another one church to another always trying to chase what you will never get don't you know sweetheart He's a global devil. If you leave San Antonio, he'll follow you to Nicaragua. If you leave Nicaragua, he'll follow you to Japan. He's a global devil. He can go anywhere. Thinking that your issues will fall away if you change locations, change spouses, change houses is an exercise in futility and it is the plan of the enemy to get you to move so the second word that i have to say to you is you gotta stand your ground in your family you gotta stand your ground in your ministry you got to stand your ground in your life you will not be able to build unless you first learn how to stand he said, so the attack against you is going to get so intense. I feel my preach coming. He said, the attack against you is going to get so difficult. The attack against you is going to get so severe that you're going to have to put on the whole armor of God just to be able If where you're standing now is attracting this much warfare from the enemy, it's probably the right place. If who you're married to now is attracting this much warfare from the enemy? You probably with the right one. If the ministry you're in now is attracting this much warfare from the enemy, you're probably in the right one. If the space you're in, if the place you're in, if the life you're living is attracting this much warfare from the enemy, it's a sign 
you better stay in your place. That's, that's why he said, that's why he said later, neither give place to the devil. What's that mean? Don't leave where you're standing. Enemy wants your place. Don't leave where you're planted. The enemy wants your place. I don't care what they say on the news. Some of y'all that are watching online know better. You need to be here in your place. God has not given us a spirit of fear. We beat this thing once, we will beat it again. He's given us a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of sound mind. Put three masks on and get back to church in the name of Jesus. The enemy wants your, your, your place. So he said, you're going to need all that armor just to be able to. In other words, he gives his church a charge to go to the wardrobe. Oh, I like it. To go to the wardrobe and dress themselves accordingly for the tactics and the wiles of the devil. What's What's in the wardrobe? Point number one, the helmet of salvation. Look at somebody and say, what's in the wardrobe? Answer them. Helmet of salvation. That was terrible. Look at somebody else. Say, what's in the wardrobe? Now answer them. Helmet of salvation. Even, uh, should I preach it or teach it? I don't know what to do. Uh, even the seasoned pastors, elders, ministers, leaders, people that have been here a long time. Listen, even the seasoned Christian must cover their mind continually with the fact that you are saved. During attacks and seasons of intense warfare, you need to remind yourself and the enemy that the greatest battle the greatest war has already been won. The warfare over your soul has already been won by Jesus and you have been saved. We don't know how to thank God for that in the church today. We know how to thank God for promotions and raises and bonuses and new jobs and new cars and new houses. But we have forgotten to thank God over the simple fact that he saved our sin-sick soul. But when you praise and thank God for your salvation, are you listening? When you praise and you thank God for your salvation, you ain't hearing me. Where are you at? I need you. When you praise and you thank God for your salvation, you've just touched the one area that the enemy cannot attack. When you praise and thank God for your car, enemy can attack your car. When you praise and thank God for your house, the enemy can attack your house. When you praise and thank God for your kids, the enemy can attack your kids. But when you praise and thank God for the fact that he saved your soul, that's one thing the enemy cannot do anything that's why the old folks used to sing this joy that I have. The world 
didn't give it to me. And because the world didn't give it, the world didn't take it away. I got 99 problems, but being saved ain't one. Jesus settled my salvation. And if I never got a reason to smile, I at least got one. If I never have a reason for joy, I at least got one. I'm saved. 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 Say it. I'm saved. I am saved. I will remind you, seasoned Christians. By the way, if you haven't accepted Jesus, none of this applies to you. I will remind you, seasoned Christians, that Jesus Christ, the day star, the rock of ages, the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, the ancient of days, Jesus Christ, the great I am, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ was arrested. He was beaten. They hung him on a cross. He died. And then Paul says his spirit and his soul descended into hell. But because there was no sin in Jesus, hell had no authority over his spirit or his soul. So when he went down into hell, he walked over to the devil's throne, knocked the devil off of it, and took the keys of authority to death hell and the grave your bible says three days later jesus soul and spirit was reunited with his body and that he bodily rose from the grave with all power in his hand that same jesus said in john 3 16 god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who so oh god have mercy who so ever if you're gay or straight whosoever whether you've been a hoe all your life or whether you've been chased whosoever whether you've been a drug addict alcoholic whatever you done whosoever whether you had seven abortions or nine whosoever believeth in him should not perish that word perish means to die spiritually meaning to have your spirit and soul damned to eternal hell. He said, no, no, no. If you believe, whosoever, if you believe, whosoever, if you believe in him, you would not perish. Rather, you would have everlasting light. You know what that is? Salvation. I'm saved. I'm saved. Jesus settled my salvation. I'm saved. So when the all-out attack and onslaught comes from the enemy, remind the enemy, I have been saved. Say it, I am saved. Say, I am saved. I got some battles, but I'm saved. I got some bruises, but I'm saved. I got some scars. When you thank God for saving you, you drag the devil's rear end all the way back to the original battlefield where he lost the keys of authority to your soul. When you thank God for saving you, you are reminding the enemy of the worst loss he ever suffered. When you thank God for saving you, when you just are walking in your house and you lift up your hands and you, a tear begins to fall down your face and you say, Lord, I just want to thank you for saving my soul. I, I just want to thank you for forgiving my sins and, and cleansing me of all my wrong and wiping my slate clean. Thank you for saving me. 
It sounds like you're just being grateful, but really what you're doing is taking a hammer to the kingdom of darkness. What you're doing is you're setting off bombs in the spirit realm by reminding the enemy hell lost another one. Hell lost another one. I know you had plans for me. I know you've been watching me in the sky for a long time. I know you sent a lot of mess after me. I even played with some of your toys for a while and danced with some of your demons. But Jesus came and found me. Jesus saved me. Jesus rescued me. And Lord, I just want to thank you for saving my soul. It's, a, it, it, it's, it's an armament. It, it covers your mind when you remind yourself and the enemy that you're saved. This, the things in the kingdom of God are foolishness to the kingdom of this world. Did you hear me? Okay. The, Paul said that God will use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Not all depression and not all anxiety issues are demons, but some are. If you are dealing with crippling depression and anxiety, I know this doesn't seem like a magic pill that will work. Try it for 30 days. When the depression and the anxiety comes on thick and when the feelings, I feel this in the room, when the feelings of worthlessness come, stop and put the helmet of salvation. In other words, Remind your mind out loud. Remind the demons that are hovering, trying to attack you. Remind by saying it out loud that you are saved and you know it. Amen. Weapon number two, the breastplate of righteousness. In Paul's using this analogy of the Roman soldier's army to describe our spiritual armor. And uh, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate covers the vital organs of a soldier's life, the heart and the lungs. And Paul calls righteousness a breastplate. Now, I've been to many conferences growing up and read many books growing up that hurt me very bad spiritually because traditionally this is taught completely wrong. Traditionally, this is taught that when you get up and you start doing the right thing, you start living right, the right behavior, you start talking right. You know, you start listening right and watching right and doing everything right, that those righteous actions become a defense. They become a breastplate. That is not what this text is talking about. Why is this righteousness a breastplate covering the most vital organs? Because it is not our righteousness. The reason I know it's not our righteousness is it's something you don't have that you got to put on. Okay. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, put on the righteousness of Christ. The beating heart and breath of the Christian life 
is that God has imputed his righteousness to us. I'm going to say that again. The beating heart and breath of the Christian's life is that God has imputed his righteousness to us. Go to Philippians 3, 9. Paul writes, and be found in him, him being Jesus, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. In other words, I don't have righteousness because I've kept the law and obeyed the commandments and done the things I was supposed to do. He said, I don't have that. But rather, that which is through faith in Christ. Watch. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Say that with me. From God by faith. So, what covers the vital organs of my Christian life from the attacks of the enemy is the breastplate I wear from a righteousness I did not possess. The breastplate of his righteousness. Why is this armor? Why is this important? Because the enemy's favorite line is, you don't deserve it. You're not worthy of it. You don't qualify. You know, every time you get down to pray, the enemy sends a flood of memories and imaginations of the things you've done, the mistakes you've made, and the condemnation comes on full tilt. You don't deserve to be heard. You don't deserve to be blessed. You're probably not even saved. You're probably not even for real. You're not doing this thing 100%. You, you know you. You know how crazy you are. All of those voices of condemnation. They rush in. Anytime you, you do get serious about trying to talk to God or trying to be spiritual or even sometimes you try to come to church and you hear the word and the enemy will tell you he's talking to somebody else. He's not talking to you. Look at what you were doing last night. Look at where you've been. Look at what you've done. You don't deserve it. And the enemy's right. You don't deserve it. But Jesus does. You don't deserve the blessing of God. But Jesus does. You don't deserve the favor and the kindness of God. But Jesus does, and it is in the name of Jesus and in the righteousness of Jesus that we stand, that God accepts us not on the basis of who we are or what we have done. God accepts us based on the faith we have in Jesus Christ, that when we believe in Jesus, God takes our guilt off the table and he applies to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his son. That's why Jesus told the disciples, when you pray, don't use your name. He said, whatsoever you ask the father in my name, that he will give you. Because you go to the father in the name of Jesus. You go to the father in the name of Jesus. It's why the apostles taught whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. Because when you go in the name of Jesus, what you've done doesn't matter. When you go in the name of Jesus, the past doesn't matter. When you pray in the name of Jesus, your current level of spirituality doesn't matter. When you go in Jesus' name, you come before God as the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. On your worst that if you have faith in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, if, let me qualify this whole message, if you have faith in Jesus, then when you go to God on your worst day, 
you are as righteous as his pure and holy son. When you go before God, God does not see you standing in your own performance or in your own efforts. God is not counting up your failures. When you go to God by faith and you go in the name of Jesus, you are standing there as pure and as holy as his spotless, sinless son. And that understanding puts a breastplate on so that when the arrows of condemnation and failure and rejection and all of those things come against the vital organs of your Christian life, they just bounce right off of you when you truly understand. I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you can't even say it because the enemy's worked you over with condemnation so much, but you ought to try it. I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you ought to say it. Some of you ought to say it. I am as righteous as Jesus Christ. Why are you as righteous as Jesus Christ? Because I have faith in him and God took his righteousness and put it on me. I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Let all the sinners say it. I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Let all the people who messed up real bad last week say it. I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Let all the people who just lied and didn't say it that last time say it. I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. If you, to the level that this sinks down in your spirit and your soul, it will set you free of every chain, of every bondage. And you know one of the deepest chains? <clears throat> you know one of the deepest chains? I just felt it raise up in here. I'm so glad you're here. You know one of the deepest chains is religious chains. Stuff you learned in Sunday school, and your Sunday school teacher was dead wrong. Stuff you learned, you know, from Pastor Wilson on 38th Street, and he was dead wrong. You know, we, we have been taught doctrines of devils that has poisoned our mind into thinking that our salvation is contingent upon our behavior. Jesus died for people who can't get it right. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for people with habitual problems and weaknesses. Jesus died for the bad people, the real, real, real bad, real, 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 real dirty, real, 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 real messed up, real, real, real broken, real backward. Jesus died. He wouldn't have died if it was an easy fix, you know. He prayed, God, if there's any way I can, I, I can get my mission accomplished without going to the cross, let it be. But nevertheless, not my will thine be done. He died. For those of you who have flaws and those of you that are ashamed 
And those of you that have been told by churches that you're never going to get it and you're no good and you're broken, he, he, he died so that he could take his perfection. Oh, hallelujah. And put it over top of your imperfection so that he could take his holiness and put it over the top of your humanity. That's why Jesus died. So that you with your messed up self could say, I am the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. And Paul said it becomes a, a breastplate. Number three, have your waist girded with truth. If you need to leave, leave now. I'm not anywhere near done. I'm just. Okay, so number three, your waist girded with truth. The word truth there, you can see it, it's doctrine. That's what it means in the, in the Greek. Having your waist girded. The girdle of a soldier's armor is the belt that holds the whole thing together. It holds all the upper armor and the lower armor together. And that word again is doctrine. In other words, the fundamentals of scripture. And I bring this up because it is so easy to be misled and deceived when you're hurting real bad. When you've been up under siege and up under attack, it is so easy to be misled and to be deceived. But core doctrinal truth will remind you of who God is. And it will remind you of who you are in him. I pulled out a couple of core doctrines. It's not an exhaustive list, but you need to believe these things in order to be saved. You need to know these things in order to be saved. And not only in order to be saved, you need to know and practice these things in order to stand during an attack of the enemy. Here's some core doctrines. We believe in one God who has eternally revealed himself in three unique manifestations. Father in creation, son in redemption, Holy Spirit in regeneration. Next, we believe in a real fancy uh, thing in theology. It's called the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. I could say a lot about it. I'm going to dumb it down and make it real simple. It just means that the Bible in its entirety is God's literal spoken word. Um, um, that didn't hit where I wanted it. It didn't hit where I wanted it. So let's go into it. There's a lot of voices now and about 17 to 30 in the room that have deep doubts concerning Scripture. Well, you know, it was written by men. No, it was God's word given to the writer to write. If, if I asked Pastor Jeff to write something down on Pastor Tracy's notebook, he did the writing, but the words were not his. If he wrote what I said, the words were mine. Okay. So we, the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture means that it wasn't just good uh, religious men that were writing down their ideas and their thoughts. 
that, that might be inspiration, but verbal plenary inspiration goes to the original Greek word inspiration, which means God breathed. Okay. That's what the word means. You can Google it. It means God breathed. So we believe that the men who were writing the scripture were actually simply taking dictation from God's mouth, that they were writing what he was saying. Now, there's other people that will say, well, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of religious writings. There's a lot of religious books. You know, they found seven other gospels in the Dead Sea, and, and there's the gospel of this one and the gospel of that one, the gospel of Judas and the gospel of Thomas. But, but, but we have to understand something. We serve an eternal God who sees the end from the beginning. And so God knew we'd be living here in 2021 back when the Bible was being compiled. And so we not only believe that God breathed the scripture to the authors, we also believe that God, the Holy Spirit, ordained the process of the scripture that was written being canonized. Well, what about the ones that were left out? If they were left out, we believe they were left out on purpose. We believe everything that is in there is supposed to be in there, and everything that's not in there is not supposed to be. And we believe this by faith, knowing that we have a good father. Jesus said, if a, if a, if a son asks a good father for a piece of bread, the good father is not going to give him a stone. God knew we would need his word and need to be sustained in our spiritual and natural lives by his word. So he made sure to get us what we needed. And the word we have in the Bible is the literal word of God. It's the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. What about all the translations? You know, it was originally written in Aramaic and in Hebrew and Greek. And what about all that? Again, we serve an eternal God who knew that multiple tongues, tribes, nations, and people would be reading it. So the words that were written, and I believe the words that were translated, convey the ideas and the thoughts and the heart of God concerning what he was telling us about. So in your Bible, with those 66 books, you have the literal words spoken by God. And incidentally, there is no deviation between God's essence and what God says. In other words, I could, there's, there's, there's separation between who I am and what I say, because I have the capability of telling you my shirt is red right now. It's a red shirt. You know, it's not, but I could, I'm creative enough. I could tell you my shirt's red. You know, I could probably convince some of you that you were colorblind and this shirt is really red. Okay. God cannot do that. The scripture says it's impossible for him to lie. Not because he couldn't say this shirt is red. It's just that if God said it, the shirt would turn red. You know, there's no, there's no separation between his essence and what he says. So when you're reading the words of God, you are literally entertaining God's essence himself. When you read the word of God out loud, you're literally reading God out loud. When you're listening to the word preached, you're literally getting God spewed all over you because there is no separation between his essence and the things that he says because he cannot lie. That's what the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture means. And I did it in six minutes. Glory to God. It's a six-month class in six minutes. Okay, 
We believe in the virgin birth of Christ. This is important. His origin was not earthly. You listening? They didn't make up the story about the angel and all that. There was this, this error in uh, the days of the early church that Jesus was just a great prophet and they made up the story about, you know, the virgin birth. And uh, in the Apostles' Creed, they, they tore that up, ripped it up one side and down the other because it is essential to Christianity that you understand that if Jesus was a natural man with a natural father and a natural mother, you might as well throw the whole faith away because none of it's real and none of it works. Jesus' origin was not this earth. He came from heaven to earth. And because his blood was not tainted by sin, because he got his blood from his father, because his blood was not tainted by sin, he was perfect. And because he was perfect, he was qualified to die for imperfect people like me and like you. That's what made the sacrifice on the cross efficacious powerful enough to wipe away all of our sins is because his blood was not tainted by the human race and by the sin we are all born into. His blood was pure and spotless. So when he shed it for you and you had faith in it, it doesn't matter how much dirt you've done, doesn't matter how filthy you are, how broken you are, the blood covers all because he was spotless. That's the importance of the virgin birth. Next, we believe in substitutionary atonement. Another really long subject you can take a theology class on. I'll boil it down for you. Substitutionary atonement means Jesus paid it all. I've charged up quite a lot of debt in my life to my sin account. And before I die, I'm sure I'm going to charge up some more. I don't want to. I ain't planning to. But when somebody cut me off on the way to church this morning. When they told me my plane was going to be delayed six hours yesterday. That there's just a few things that happen in the course of life. I'm pretty sure I'm going to rack up a whole lot more to that account before I die. I'm planning on living a long time. I'm sure there are going to be some issues and some problems and some stumbles and some fall. But whenever I stand before God, no matter how much sin I have racked up on that account, when I stand before my judge who will judge every single one of us and he looks at me, he will say that debt in total has been completely paid because Jesus paid it all. There's this erroneous lie that Jesus paid only for the sins you committed before you got saved. No, 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 no. Substitutionary atonement means as much as you could sin, as much damnation as you rightly deserved, 
that God the Father, the judge, poured out the wrath of his judgment and full payload of penalty on Jesus Christ, his son. And that when we believe in, have faith in, trust in, turn to Jesus, the full account of our life of sin is taken to the account of the cross, covered by the blood, and completely paid in full. Substitutionary atonement. That's what it means. We, we believe, i got to get through the rest of this. We believe... In the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is going to be a tough one for some of y'all. And that's okay. I like that. I'm glad God's sending us people to this church that are confused or have issues with this. That's what this is for, to work those things out. We believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of glossolalia, which means speaking in other tongues. That God, laugh if you want to, it saved my life. God himself will fill you with his spirit. And then from out of you, if you allow him to, his spirit will pray. In a language that bypasses your mind, so it's totally unfruitful to your understanding. But you can pray in the spirit and pray in an unknown tongue. And not only does it bypass your mind, but it bypasses the enemy where he has his seat of authority in the sky. The devil was able to resist Daniel's prayers and his angel because he could hear everything Daniel was saying. If Daniel would have had the Holy Ghost, his prayer and his answer would have gotten right through. Even though it had to go through the principalities and the powers and rulers of the darkness in the air. If he would have been able to pray in the spirit, it would have gotten right through. You are missing a crucial element to your Christian walk and to your life in general. If you are not taking time to pray in the spirit and speak in tongues every single day. Now, listen, here's why a lot of people don't do it. A lot of you need to feel the anointing or what the old folks call a quickening. Now, those of us that have been in church, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to feel the spirit. You know, a certain song comes on, you know, or, or a certain word is preached in a certain way and it just goes all over you. You know, you feel it. You know, you may not, you may not shake, but, but you know, you feel something, you know, somebody, somebody just totally at church said, I like the way you preach, man. Sometimes when you get to preach, I start feeling it like down in my stomach. That's, that's the Holy Ghost. But, but, but. It's wonderful to feel the anointing, right? It's wonderful to feel that, but you're feeling that anointing with your human feelers. You know, you get the chill bumps and you just feel the glory. It's amazing that God manifests himself to us in a way sometimes that we can feel him. That's wonderful. Praying in spirit has nothing to do with that. 
Praying in the spirit is something you do like you do everything else in the kingdom of God. You do it by faith. I know I have received salvation. I know Jesus said in the New Testament that everyone that was saved, he would baptize us spiritually in the Holy Ghost and with fire. I know I have received this gift from God and I'm going to pray in the spirit. Now, you got to understand the duality of it. When you're praying in the spirit, it doesn't matter whether you're in a spiritual mood or mode or not. You know? When you're praying in the spirit, it completely is unfruitful. It doesn't serve anything in your natural being. Now, some of you that are real church grew up in it. You may think it does because it may conjure some kind of memory or some kind of religious comfort that you have. And that's fine. That's wonderful. You know, you use all you can get. But whether you have that or not, when you pray in the Holy Spirit, The spirit of God himself, who knows the mind of God, the will of God, who knows the past, present and future is praying through you without any thought or consideration to the flesh, without any thought or consideration to what you've been doing or what you haven't been doing without any thought or consideration to how good you've been or how bad you've been. When you're praying in the spirit, something spiritual is happening outside of, separate from your natural being. Jesus said in John chapter three, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's always going to be flesh. It's its own thing. That which is born and birth of the spirit is spirit. It's always going to be spirit. It is its own thing. Okay. If you're not praying in the spirit, you're missing out on a defense system. You are missing out on help you could get every day that that you don't even fully understand. There is power in praying in the Holy Ghost. You need the Holy Ghost. Your marriage needs the Holy Ghost. Your children need their mama and daddy to have the Holy Ghost. You'll be a better employee or a better boss if you have the Holy Ghost. You'll be a better citizen. You'll be a better person if you would pray in the Holy Ghost. Some of the stuff you're calling an attack really isn't even serious warfare. It's just the results of you not having a real prayer life and not prioritizing letting the Spirit of God pray and speak through you and praying In the Holy Ghost. You'd be a better singer up here on the worship team if you prayed in the Holy Ghost. You'd be a better musician or a sound tech if you would pray in the Holy Ghost. You'd be better at what you're trying to do for God if you'd sometimes let him speak through you. You'd be a better Christian if you'd pray in the Holy Ghost. You'd be a better church member if you'd pray in the Holy Ghost. And you're not doing it, and that's why you're not further ahead than you are. You need to learn to pray in the Holy Ghost. Don't, don't, listen, listen, some of you are real good at getting conjured up, you know, when you hear Holy Ghost preaching or something like that, like it's this soulish thing, but just take what I'm saying right now. Take the style away and just think about the words. God gave us this gift and it is core doctrine. God gave us this gift and intended for us to use it. To use it. 
And a lot of us are coming to church and going through the motions and doing all these other things. And we're not using the most powerful weapon that God gave us, which is praying in the Holy Ghost. You say, I don't have the Holy Ghost. Stop. Yes, you do. Let me dispel that. You may not have the uh, fulfillment of it. Okay. You, you may not have all of the gifts manifesting out of you. But the Bible says you can't get saved of your own will and volition. You can't get saved unless the spirit of God himself draws you, which means if you got saved, the Holy Spirit is active and at work in you. And probably one of the reasons that you're not speaking in tongues is your mind is getting in the way and it ain't got nothing to do with your mind. God gives this gift to people who believe in Jesus Christ. You need to get your mind out of the way, fall on your knees, say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I believe in you. I thank you for filling me with the Holy Ghost. Now allow me to speak in tongues and let that river flow until it spills over. Let the joy of my salvation spill over. Let the purpose of God in my life spill over. Let your plans and your will and your design spill over. Not my will, but thine be done. And then just go off in faith. And begin to pray in the spirit. Sing in the spirit. Hum in the spirit. Walk around in the spirit. Pray in. All right, look. All of that is up under the heading of the doctrine of truth. The belt of truth that holds all the rest of the armor together. These core doctrines hold the life of a Christian together in balance, you know, so that, so that your, your shoulder pads and your, and your breastplate and your, your shin guards and everything aren't going everywhere and lopsided and crazy and you're not out of balance. It holds it all in balance. You need to know it. You need to practice it. You need to rehearse it. You need to confess it. You need to stand in it every day. Give God a hand praise. All right, another good time to leave. Still ain't done. Where am I? Number four, having your feet. This is a really good one. I like this. If you ever hear that I'm out of town for a week, you might not want to come to church that next Sunday. Is I get like a eensy teensy bit of rest and okay. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is another thing. When I was reading the text, I heard some of you quoting it. You have no idea what it means. No idea what it means. He said, there is something about preparing to present. The gospel of peace that actually becomes a guard for your feet. All right. Uh, what is what is the gospel of peace? Do you remember the first thing the angel announced when Jesus was born? It says glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth. Peace. Was he talking about world peace? He couldn't have been because there's never been peace in the earth, not before Jesus, not after him. 
He was talking about from heaven's perspective. Because of Jesus, now when heaven looks at the earth, there's no longer war, there's peace. So you got to understand when our ancient grandparents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they opened the door to that demonic power. And he came in. God came down and redeemed him, but that demonic power left its stain in the blood of the human race. So every human being born after Adam and Eve was born into this world with the stain of sin in the blood. You understand what I'm saying? No one has to teach us to do wrong and to break God's commandments. We do it by nature. Paul said we were by nature children of wrath, children of disobedience, children of malice, children of lust, children of hate. All of these things come natural. They're in the blood. So as a result, our nature as human beings was at war with the righteous and holy nature of God. You understand what I'm saying? But when Jesus came, God signed a peace treaty. When Jesus came, God said the war between heaven and earth is now over because of what Jesus has done. And this is the gospel of peace. Okay. This is the gospel of peace. That our sin, our brokenness, and our failures no longer has us at odds or at war with God. If we have Jesus, there is peace. Now, Paul said that if you would prepare to share that gospel of peace, that it would do something for your feet. Now, look, I know a lot of you already checked out because I'm a few minutes over. But for whoever this, oh, I ain't worried about it. But whoever this is for, I promise you I ain't worried about it. <laughs> whoever, listen, listen, whoever this is for, this is, a, this is an answer, right? So don't call me next week. This is the answer. Your feet are your movement and your mobility. To those of you who have been feeling stuck. Listen to me. To those of you that have been feeling trapped. To those of you who have had your movement in life restricted. This is a kingdom strategy. Prepare. Study. Prepare to share the gospel of peace with someone. Okay. God has called every believer to preach to somebody. You're a preacher and you don't know it. And, you know, you're a preacher and preachers need to prepare. Do you know you never learn something like you learn it when you know you're going to have to share it? You ain't never studied in your life until you study something you know you're going to have to present to somebody else or to a big room, you know. It will make you study. I mean, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. You still be studying because you never learn something like you learn it when you learn it to teach it to someone else. So he says, the prepara your preparation to share the gospel of peace with someone 
And like 99% of you have never done that. The Barna survey said 97% of Christians will never share their faith with anybody that's not already a Christian themselves. You know, you've got somebody in your life that God intends for you to share the gospel of peace with. Okay. You got a sister, you got a brother. I know you don't like them, but you got coworkers, you got friends, you got kids, you know, you know, the amount of people that never put any time, thought or preparation into how they're going to share the gospel with someone who hasn't really heard it or hasn't heard the real one. You know, most people, the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. So you interview most people and you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Or are you going to go to hell? Most people will tell you, they'll either say, I don't know. Or they'll tell you, I'm going to go to heaven because I try really hard to be a good person and I try to do more good than I do bad. That is humanistic self-righteousness and it is totally backwards. The gospel of peace, the gospel that the war is over between God and man if you accept Jesus Christ. The gospel of peace that Jesus Christ accepted in his own body, the full punishment for all of our sins, and that if we accept him and have faith in him, we are granted life forever with God. Our sins are washed away and we are cleansed. The gospel of peace, and most of you have never prepared to share it. And he just, this is amazing apostolic work the man's doing. He just dropping stuff. He's not even intending to drop. He just said, there's something about preparing to share. I mean, there's somebody in every single one of your lives that needs to hear it this week. If you prepare to share, if you will sit down with a pen and a pad and a Bible and you will prepare to share the real gospel. And if you need some help, you can get more than a Bible. I tell, I'll give you a book. The best book in the world from the best author in the world at explaining the gospel quickly. If you don't want to give somebody a seminar or you don't want to drag them to church and listen to me scream, the best, the best author at explaining the gospel in a simple, clear, and concise manner is Dr. Timothy Keller. Just Google him and get any of his books. All of his books are about the gospel. And it's all about being able to understand it and grasp it. Okay, get the book and sit down and make some notes and prepare to share the gospel of peace. When you do, there's something about the preparation of it that puts something on your feet. Okay, that's why the Bible says in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel. That's not just about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and preachers. That is about anybody who will prepare to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with any family member. Any, you know, we, we tell our children about, about God. I mean, we're supposed to. Have you ever thought about sitting down and actually preparing how you're going to introduce the gospel to your children if they're young or if they're teenagers or whatever they are? Have you taken time and thought about how you're going to have the conversation? Or maybe you have adult children. Have you taken the time and thought about how am I going to have the conversation with them about the gospel of peace? And there's something about doing it that, that covers your feet.
and opens up your mobility to where the darkness doesn't have the same effect on you. The resistance of the enemy doesn't have the same effect on you. Okay, next number, where am I at? Number five. Number five. He says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I preached that to you two weeks ago. I gave you the nuclear option. Don't try to fight the devil in your own strength or with your own intercession or your own power and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't work. Fight the devil with the words God has already spoken. Okay, Jesus said, it, thus it is written. And then we read in Zechariah where God himself looked at the devil and said, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Number six, he says, above all. Now I'm closing. Above all. Listen to this. Above all. Somebody didn't come for service today. They came for help. They came for real help. Above all, the shield of faith. Now watch this. The shield of faith is not constructed based off of future belief or future hope. You know, like I'm having faith for a promotion. Or I'm having faith that God, you know, is going to give me another child. Or I'm having faith that God is gonna. That's not what he's talking about here. The shield of faith is not constructed based off of future belief, but rather the confidence of past victories. Oh, that's good. That's good. You're too tired to clap because I preach too long, but that's good. When God, listen to me. When God has brought you through something and proved himself in a certain area of your life, those past experiences become a shield against future attacks in that area. You don't hear what I'm saying. So God healed you eight years ago, and you know he healed you. And now next month, the doctor says you got something scary. Is it time for you to fall apart and go out on the floor and act like you're forsaken? No, it's time to reach back to that last thing God did where he proved himself in that area and raise up that shield. You see what I'm saying? It's not constructed based off future belief or hope. Something that hadn't happened yet. It's based off past victories and the confidence of where God proved himself. And with that point, we go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 29. Jesus is about to do the same thing he just did three and a half months prior, okay? It's, it's staggering how similar the situation is, so similar that many people confuse the two events and think it's a contradiction of Scripture. Well, in one place it said he, he fed 5,000. Another place it said he fed four. No, it's talking about two separate events. One event said 12 baskets. One event said seven. No, it's, it's two separate events. Jesus has just done this. He's with, the first time he's with, he's with Philip and they're in a desert place and there's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And the Bible says Jesus wanted to test Phil. He said, Phil, come here, bud. 
where do you think we could get enough bread for all these people to eat? Phil said, there's no place to buy bread, Jesus. If you hadn't noticed, we're in a desert place. And even if there was a place to buy it, we don't have enough money in the ministry treasury to buy enough for every one of them just to have a little bit. Then Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? We, we found five small barley loaves, two small fish. This little boy's willing to give you his sack lunch. Jesus takes it, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to the disciples. And he feeds all of the men and all the women and children, rough estimates, about 15,000 people. Takes up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Okay. Few months later, Jesus is in the same scenario, except this time he's not preaching. He's conducting deliverance and healing ministry. They bring in people that are mute. Almost always in the scripture, when somebody was mute, it was because of a demonic spirit. They brought these people to Jesus. Jesus was healing them. They brought him the maimed people that had twisted limbs or, or they had a dead arm or something that wouldn't work properly or a withered hand. They brought him the deaf and the blind and he healed them all. If I'm seeing people with no eyeballs in their eye sockets, get hands laid on them by Jesus and walk away with brand new eyes. I'm not going to be too worried about if you can multiply some food. And yet, after healing all of them, and to add insult to injury, after just performing this same miracle a few months ago, Jesus goes to the disciples and he said, look, I feel bad for these people. They've been with me three days. They haven't had anything to eat. I don't want them to faint on the way home. Um, where, where can we get some food to feed them? And the disciples have the same exact answer they had last night. Lord, we don't have enough money to buy food for all these people. Where are we going to get bread from anyway? We're out here in the wilderness. It's like they completely forgot the last thing he just did, and you did too. Because some of you are stressed out to the max this morning over an issue that somewhere in your past experience, God has already proved himself. You need a healing now, but you've been healed before. You need a financial breakthrough now, but you've got one before. You need a promotion now, but you've got one before. You don't have to go that far back in your mind to find the last time God did the thing or something similar that you need him to do. Now, what is it about us that we are so quick in our human nature to forget? just a few months ago. It's amazing how we can receive so much and yet still be so dull in our faith. And I have found this out. It seems like we got to muster up a new faith for every coming trial like he ain't done nothing in the past. The disciples were trying to construct a new expectation 
And when you're trying to build up and construct something new, you can't use it as a shield. So the shield of faith is not constructed by a future belief or a future hope. It is constructed based off the confidence of past experiences. All the disciples had to do was look behind them just a little way, and they could have raised up the shield of faith. And if they didn't say nothing else, they could have said, Jesus, with God, all things are possible. But we get in this, in this merry-go-round, this rigmarole, where we need to be built up for the fight every single time we're threatened or attacked. Pastor, I need a word, or I need this, or I need that. And I'm telling you, you've got enough in your past experience to raise up the shield for those attacks that are coming against you, for those fiery darts of the enemy that are coming against you, for all of those things that's assailing itself against you and threatening you. You've got enough history, but you you got to raise the shield. You know? You know what I found out about real shields? They're kind of heavy. In other words, this takes a little bit of effort. You know? Going back in your mind and, and digging out all of the emotions and the memories of what God has done, it, it can take some effort. But if you'll do it, it will become a shield. Your, your marriage is in trouble right now today. But it was in trouble a couple years ago. And God brought you through that. Your, your finances are in trouble today. They were in trouble about 16 months ago. And God brought you through that. Pastor, I can't pay my electric bill. They're going to turn off the power and it's going to be hot in the house. That ain't the first time that's happened to you. We got to stop approaching all these battles and all this warfare like we've never seen him do anything. Like we've never seen his power. Like we, some of us, we, we have no excuse. We've seen him work for our parents and our grandparents. We've seen him work in the lives of people that he's planted around us and their lives have been billboards of what he's able to do. You have no excuse for being so hopeless and despondent. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Once you do that now and give the Lord a praise. done a lot of things today, but you told me to minister deep in the word. You told me to take my time. 
And Lord, I know it was a lot of content to absorb, but I pray supernaturally you'll soak these words into the souls and hearts of the people, that it will be sealed in them. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will bless them with the reminder of how strong you've already been. And I pray that no matter what they are facing today, I pray that supernaturally by your grace and your power, that you'll bring them to a place of deliverance and freedom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Give the Lord praise and worship all over the house.